several weeks, we have had the opportunity to look at a little mini-series we've entitled Life in the Body. And we're going through, as you know, our church membership time, the inaugural charter membership of Thousand Oaks Bible Church. And this morning's message is the fourth in our mini-series of messages on life in the body. We started out with a message on membership itself. And then, of course, last Lord's Day, we talked about baptism in the morning, the Lord's Supper uh, last Sunday night. And for this morning's hour, I want to talk about church discipline, church restoration. And I know that that strikes fear in the hearts of so many when you hear that term church discipline, if you know anything about it. I'm curious, uh, with the show of hands, how many of you have been a part of a prior church ministry in which church discipline, a public form of discipline, were enacted? See, some of you, but not all of you. So this is good for us to be able to bring this message to bear on all of our hearts. And one thing I want all of us to know is that when we use the word discipline, we don't necessarily need to use it in the negative sense. Because all of us are under discipline, aren't we? The Lord disciplines us. We are by nature, even as regenerate believers, even as those who are already Christians, uh, we can fall by the wayside, we can err, we can sin, we can have faults. Uh, we are often in need of correction uh, through the Word of God, through others, through our prayer life, of course, all of these means that God gives His grace to us to be disciplined, to be nurtured, to be taught and warned, instructed. And that's no different. In fact, I think it would be good for us to, to see the point that Scripture makes when it says that God Himself disciplines us. So if you look in your Bibles at Hebrews chapter 12, this might be a good place uh, to jump off into the Scripture as we see how the Lord Himself loves and disciplines us. And in this text of Hebrews 12, you will see that love and discipline are given in the same passage. And so it is not true to say that discipline is the opposite of love or discipline is done in the absence of love. Not so. In Hebrews chapter 12, you will see very, very clearly that discipline is what God Himself does for us. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 3. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. That, of course, is a reference to what Jesus endured by sinners, both in his life and in his death. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. In other words, Christ went all the way to the cross, shed his blood, underwent all of that enduring pain and hostility by sinners against himself and that's not even been our experience verse 5 and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons quotation from the old testament my son do not regard lightly the discipline of the lord nor be weary when reproved by him for the love for the lord disciplines the one he loves you see those two ideas in the same verse he disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And then the writer to Hebrews goes on to say in verse 7, It is for discipline 
that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. The point he's making there, if you have been disciplined, it is because you are a son. Because the Lord disciplines his sons. He scourges or chastises chastises every son whom he receives. And if you haven't been disciplined, then it's the manifestation of the realization that you are not really a son, but you are an illegitimate child. Because if no one undergoes discipline, then they're not the Lord's. Because the Lord disciplines those whom he loves, his own sons. Verse 9, besides this, then he uses a human analogy, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Now, I would parenthetically add there, we didn't always appreciate it. We didn't always like it. But ultimately, we respected those parents who disciplined us. That's his point. We respected them. And then, of course, the writer says here, shall we not more be subject to the Father, capital F, God the Father? Shall we not be more subject to the Father of spirits and live? In other words, if the Father of spirits, the Father of souls... If the Heavenly Father disciplines us, should we not respect Him all the more? Should we not appreciate Him all the more? Should we not live in light of His discipline? For they, verse 10, referring to earthly fathers, they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He, the Heavenly Father, disciplines us for our good. You see the purpose of discipline? It's for restoration. It's for bringing someone back onto the path. Our Heavenly Father disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. The very purpose of discipline is so that we might be holy. Verse 11, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who who have been trained by it. The whole reason the writer is giving us here the sense of be receptive to discipline, respond to discipline, is because he wants these discouraged professors of Christ to understand that when they are disciplined, it is for their good, it is for their holiness. That's why he says in verse 12, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. It's a wonderful analogy of that which needs to be corrected. It's like a broken limb. And when that limb is corrected by the doctor, and when he puts it back in place, it is very painful, but it is for ultimately that person's good, so that they might have use of that limb. Verse 14 then concludes, at least for our purposes, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness. Notice this without which no one will see the Lord. You see, this holiness that God is working into our souls, these these Christian professors, God is working into their souls the idea that if you are undergoing hostility at the hands of others, if, if you are being treated poorly, if there are those who are coming against you and you're tending to grow weary and be faint-hearted, then look to Christ. Christ went all the way to the cross with such hostility against himself. 
And he did it for joy. That's what he says in, in Hebrews 12 too, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He went all the way to that cross, despising that shame, and for joy he endured that hostility. So the writer says, look, you could be weak, you could have drooping hands, you could have weak knees, but you can have that lame, spiritually speaking, foot or hand put back into place by discipline so that you will be more holy because without which that holiness that you are, you are perceiving, you are pursuing, without which that holiness will never allow you to see the Lord. So God disciplines us. That's the whole point. God does it. And if God does it, then the local church should be all about doing it if need be. That's the whole point. If God is doing this, if God is disciplining us for our good, then we ought to be involved in the discipline of one another. So for our purposes today, I really want to talk about two kinds of discipline, all right? The first will go very quickly within maybe a minute or two of my starting it, and the second we'll spend all of our time on. Why do I say that? Well, here are the two. The first kind of discipline that we could call discipleship discipline is simply the regular form of body life that we have. Discipleship discipline. What do I mean by that? Well, even the word discipline itself is tied to the word discipleship, right? So discipleship discipline is simply regular holiness lived out in the body of Christ. That's all we're talking about. You say, well, what does that consist of? Loving one another, caring for one another, admonishing one another, reproving one another, rebuking one another, caring for one another, all the one another's and more. Uh, it, it, it includes the Word of God coming to bear on our own hearts as we have our own quiet times, as we hear the Word preached, as we hear the encouragement of others as they share Scripture with us. Maybe you're in a group where you're memorizing Scripture. Maybe you're praying together. Prayer is a form of this discipleship discipline. All the, the essence of the Christian life is God, through the body of Christ especially, disciplining us in a discipleship sense. And that is good. And that's very normal. And that's a regular part, a habitual part, of what God does in the discipline of our lives. And we accept that from others, or so we should. We are all about receiving from them the kind of discipline that they bring to us. And we receive it, and, and we welcome it, because we know we can't live the Christian life on our own. We need others in the body of Christ to help us, to encourage us to admonish us at times, to rebuke us, to, to speak into our lives and our hearts about how we should grow, something they be, may be seeing in us. That's a very regular part of the Christian life, and that's why we call it discipleship discipline. Life-on-life -life relationships, general holiness, general growth in godliness, and that's a key element. But in addition to that, there is what we might be able to call restorative discipline not just regular run-of-the-mill generic discipleship discipline but restorative discipline and when I say restorative discipline it is something like this let's say that Christian a is really off the path they have really seriously veered off the path of their profession of Christ and they're involved 
in very, very serious sinful activity. It's not just the regular discipleship discipline where someone sees you step out of cadence and they come to you and say, brother, sister, we love you, we care about you, Uh, I want to admonish you about something or I want to speak to you. Uh, Have you considered this? Uh, Here's a passage that you might meditate on. And, And when you see it, when you receive it from them, you automatically say, you know, they're right. They're right. I'm wrong in this. I need to confess this. I need to seek the Lord's forgiveness. Uh, If I've sinned against anybody else, I need to run to them and seek their forgiveness. And sometimes that's not all neat and tidy as it should be. But generally speaking, that discipleship discipline is a a way for you to respond immediately to those around you and you respond with repentance. And you turn from that sin almost immediately because when they come to you, you're assuming that the Holy Spirit is actually working through them to come to you and point out these areas of your life. And you respond to that. And that kind of discipleship discipline includes the idea of turning from that and repenting and responding. And that's a very natural and normal part of the Christian life and life in the body. But there may come a time when there might be a member of the body who doesn't readily see the need to repent. They are sinning in such a way that maybe they have a blind spot to it. Maybe they've fallen uh, into a, a sinful pattern of, of this sort or, or that sort. And so you come alongside them, but they initially begin to appear to reject your admonishment. And they don't appear to initially respond in repentance. And that's why we would differentiate from discipleship discipline this idea of restorative discipline. And I see two forms of this restorative discipline. I see first what we might be able to call protective restorative discipline. Protective restorative discipline. What do I mean by that? Well, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. And I'm going to share a whole host of passages with you that will take up the bulk of the rest of our time together talking about this matter of restorative discipline. And specifically with this first point, what we might call protective restorative discipline. This is, this is a whole host of passages that I want to share with you that are primarily taking place from a leadership vantage point down to and through the flock. Okay? This is primarily what the leaders are called upon to do. And, and I want you to see with a whole host of passages that I'm going to share with you, I don't know, 8, 10, 12, 15 passages all together for the bulk of the rest of our time. And I want you to see how pervasive this matter of restorative discipline is in our Bibles. Now, we are going to talk about Matthew 18. And that is, of course, the most famous of these church discipline passages. However, I want you to see a couple of categories here, protective discipline and collective discipline. That'll be the second one. And I want you to see... the the pervasiveness of these passages and how often discipline is thought of or mentioned or taught in the New Testament. It's not just Matthew 18. It's a whole host of passages. And here are some of these protective, some have even called it preemptive discipline, where the leadership steps in almost immediately and warns and instructs and confronts the idea of sin in the midst. I want you to look at Acts chapter 5 and the, the serious nature of the sin that Peter uncovered with Ananias and Sapphira. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, 
sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. There was some deception there, some hypocrisy. Verse 3, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Now stop right there. Now, I'm not about to say that this passage can be overlaid on my leadership automatically as pastor of the church because I can't, like Peter did by divine revelation, look into Ananias' heart, right? There's nothing in the text that says that somebody told Peter this, and so my assumption is the Lord told Peter this. And that doesn't happen in our 21st century context in the local church. Sometimes I wish it might so that I can know what's in the hearts, not only of my own heart, but in the hearts of the congregation. But we don't know. But this is still an example of Peter confronting someone immediately in the discipline sense. And he's protecting the church. That's why we have it in this category. Protective restorative discipline. Protective. He's protecting the flock. He says, you have not lied to men, but to God. By the way, that's an implicit affirmation that the Holy Spirit is God, because in verse 3, he says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then he says, you've not lied to men, but to God. Do you see the connection? The Holy Spirit is God. When Ananias heard these words, Peter confronting him, with Peter protecting the rest of the flock because of the hypocrisy and the deception of Ananias and his wife, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And what does the next phrase say? And great fear came upon all who heard of it. This is a very serious thing, isn't it? This is immediate and forceful discipline upon this man. And it's for the sake of the protection of the flock. Now, it is, of course, for the sake of the fear of the rest of the flock, lest they too bring their hypocritical offering, their deception, but it's also for the protection of the flock. And while, of course, this is unique and unrepeatable and not something I could do, the point is still the same. God wants to protect his flock. And if someone is deceiving the flock, if they've been involved in hypocrisy, then they will be dealt with. And, of course, Ananias here was de dealt with very, very severely. So much so that the young men, according to verse 6, young servants, they rose, they wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. It's a very quick discipline process, isn't it? Verse 7, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, which, by the way, may signal that this was at least a three-hour worship service. Amen and amen. <laughs> Not knowing what had happened to her husband, and Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. In other words, there was an opportunity for her to say the right thing, to do the right thing. In essence, she had three hours, and when confronted... If her heart had been right, if she had had a sensitive conscience, she would have said, no, we did not sell the land for what I'm giving you. We've held some money back. But what did she say? She said, yes, for so much. That's a lie. Verse 9, but Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are out the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. 
When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Can you imagine the work that those men had to do that day? They, they just finished burying her husband, and they come back three hours later after that task, and Peter says, there's one more. Carry her out as well. Her hypocrisy, her deceit. And then verse 11. This is a fascinating verse. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Who's that? That's the community around the church. In other words, you go into that place and you deceive and you lie and you're involved in hypocrisy, you could come out of there dead. That's how serious this is. And Peter, acting as a protection, as a leader, wanted to make sure that discipline was enacted. How about Acts chapter 8? This is Simon Magus. This is a man who had been doing, according to verse 9, some magic in the city. And he amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him. This is Acts chapter 8, verse 10. They all paid attention to him from the last to the greatest. And they were saying about him, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him. Because for a long time he'd amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, quotes around that, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs of great multitudes performed, he was amazed. Verse 14, now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he'd not yet fallen on any of them, but they'd only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now here's the story, verse 17. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, Uh uh-oh, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. What's he doing? He'd been practicing this magic for for, for all these years, and he had a proud heart. And when he saw this uh, new way of making more money, a new way of being called someone even greater than he was, hey, give me this uh, power. Give me this power, he says, verse 19. But what is this protective discipline of Peter? Verse 20, but Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. That doesn't describe a Christian, does it? Now, we don't know, according to verse 24, if he was truly a Christian, but he does say, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Maybe that was just, uh, he was being scared. Uh, Maybe Peter's words jolted him. We don't know. We don't know exactly, but here's what we do know. Peter was trying to protect the early church from someone who was wanting the power of God illegitimately. That's the point. How about 1 Timothy chapter 1? Discipline is is not confined to just uh, Matthew 18, and we'll get there, but this is the idea of protective discipline. Notice what the Apostle Paul does in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He even talks about 
certain persons by name. He's protecting the flock. He's protecting them against false teachers. In verse 18, starting there, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. You see, this is a battle, folks. It's a battle for truth. Holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, these are those who, like Simon, wanted to do something outside what God had required, what God prescribed. And some who aren't holding faith in a good conscience, they've rejected the teaching of Christianity. Some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. And notice what Paul says, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now again, this is an apostle speaking. This is not something that I can do. I can't hand anybody over as a pastor so that they may learn not to blaspheme. But this is still in that sense, that category of protective discipline. Paul is saying, look, I have a responsibility as a spiritual leader to assure those who are true that those who are false, like Hymenaeus and Alexander here, don't upset the faith of others. They've made shipwreck of their faith. We're going to ensure that we mark them out that we tell the flock about them, that that we warn people about these two men. How would you like to have your name mentioned there in posterity as someone who was shipwrecked in their faith? It's a very, very serious thing. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy 1. He mentions a couple of others. Verse 15. He says, You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are... Phagellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. So he gives a positive example, but certainly gives two negative examples, Phagellus and Hermogenes. And he doesn't stop there. Look at chapter 2, verse 16. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. And then he gives two more examples. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. And Paul just goes right to the core issue and says, I'm going to tell you exactly who they are. I'm protecting you. As a flock. Look at chapter 3, verse 5. Some people have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. And then what's that next phrase? Avoid such people. This is discipline. This is discipline by protection. You, you You need to stand clear of them. You need to be away from them. Don't be around them. And then he gives an amazing example. Verse 6, for... Among them are those who creep into households, capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. And then he goes all the way back to Moses, and he says, Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far. 
for their folly will be plain to all, as, as was that of those two men, Janus and Jambres. So this is very serious stuff, very serious. You can look at all of these examples, and I've just given you a highlight of them, that shows that the flock of Christ, the body of Christ, has to be protected through discipline, through a pronouncement of judgment. And it primarily, as I said, comes from leaders down through the flock, like me warning you of the latest heresy or something that's seducing people in our own day, just like Paul does here. In fact, notice the the practicality of this. Look at the next Bible book, Titus, chapter 3. Titus 3, verse 9. Paul says, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, that means factions, and quarrels about the law. Apparently in Paul's time, there were those who were coming, and they wanted to tell you the new thing about the law. They wanted to tell you a a, a new thing about some interpretive element. It involved some kind of controversy. Uh, Maybe it involved a genealogy of some kind. And it was nothing but a dissension, a faction, a quarrel about the law. And he says, why should that be avoided? Because they are unprofitable and worthless. And then notice verse 10. As for a person, an unnamed person, who stirs up division. By the way, that word division hereticos, heresy. Someone who's stirring up a faction, a division, a heresy, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Paul is saying, don't have them give sway in the church about their latest interpretation regarding the law. It's unprofitable, it's worthless, You warn them once, if they do not repent. You warn them twice, if they do not repent, then you have nothing more to do with them. Why? Because a person like that is warped, sinful, and self-condemned. The Apostle John says the same thing in 1 John. 1 John chapter 2. You see, there's a lot more in our Bibles and our New Testaments about discipline than just the sense of Matthew 18, which is the more popular verse. We'll get to that in a moment. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. John says, they, referring to a a body of those who were probably in the Ephesus church. We're going through that on Sunday nights, the book of Ephesians. And apparently in that church, there were a group of people who were doctrinally deficient. They were proclaiming something about Christ when in fact they were wrong about that. And he calls them in the prior verse, verse 18, that they're anti-Christ. They're teaching something against the person of Christ. And in verse 19, they, this group, went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. This is John stepping in with the leadership of the church and warning about these heretics, these false teachers. Look at 2 John. 2 John 7. John continues... For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Apparently they taught something that was radically different than the apostolic gospel. They denied somehow that Jesus Christ had come in the flesh. They were deceivers. And John says, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. 
And then he, then he gives very specific instructions. Verse 9, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. It's very serious, isn't it? He even says in 3 John 9, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, gives a name again, who likes to put himself first, maybe your translation says, who likes the preeminence, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want, uh, who want to and puts them out of the church. False discipline, wrong discipline of true believers. He wants the preeminence. He's in charge. He's indiscriminately disciplining those out who are true believers, and he's keeping the true believers from coming inside. This is, this is a very serious thing, this idea of the, the leadership protecting the flock and filtering on down to the flock these warnings to protect them in a preemptive sense, or maybe the battle's on and we have to protect you because you've been swayed by it. And that's sometimes what happens in discipline. Let's go to the second one. Let's call this collective, collective or corrective restorative discipline. Collective in the sense that this in, involves the whole body. Turn to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians 6. This is, in a sense, what the body does as it moves and ministers to one another and as that movement rises up to the top toward the leadership. If the first example of restorative discipline is the leadership filtering down their warnings to the flock, this is what the body is doing regularly, and it filters back up to the leadership, and the leadership knows what the flock is doing. And here's one example. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, uh, some kind of sin that's caught him almost unaware, he's tripped up, he, he falls into it, if anyone is caught, that word caught, the idea uh, that he, he's may not, maybe not full-blown into it, he, he's caught, he, he got caught in a trap, he's responsible, it is a transgression, uh, but he needs help. The Bible says there in Galatians 6.1, you who are spiritual. That doesn't mean those who are much more spiritual than others who are a little bit spiritual. It's just a way synonymously of saying you Christians. You Christians, you who are in the body, you, you other Christians should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens. This is just life in the body. Someone was caught. We don't know what specific sin. This is a generic kind of teaching that just says somebody in your flock may fall into it. They may be tripped up. They may be, be trapped. And when they are, it's a sin. It's a transgression. You, the other spiritual members of the body, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. You're always watching on yourself, lest you too be tempted, and then you get caught, and then they have to come and, and help you. And the idea is this reciprocal relationship, Galatians 6 two, bear one another's burdens. This is that collective discipline. 
Somebody's, somebody's caught. They need our help. So we come alongside them. And in a spirit of gentleness, you come alongside them and you, you admonish them, you care for them, you lift them up. It's, it's almost like that same idea where they've got a limb that's broken and you, you work to heal it. It's a very tender, gentle operation. And you are coming alongside in love. Second Thessalonians chapter 3. Second Thessalonians chapter 3. This is, again, a, a collective opportunity to be corrective within the flock. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. Now, we command you, brothers, this is a command of Paul to the Thessalonians, we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away, distance yourself, Stand aloof from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition you received from us. What was going on there? Idle in the sense of the person not working, not sharing the load, not, not working so as to bring uh, pay, uh, produce, uh, material goods to either their family or the flock in general. Maybe they're idle in the sense that they're a busybody. Busy body. They're, they're, they're not working, and in the times where they should be working, they're talking, they're not doing the right thing, they're upsetting others, and he says, stand away from them, stand aloof from them. Look at verse 14. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. That's a phrase that means, in a public sense, mention it to the flock. Mention it to the flock. Take note of that person. Mark out that person. Create boundaries between those who are walking in holiness and those who are professing holiness but not being holy in that moment. Take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. And you say, that's totally unloving. That's totally unloving. That is unfair. That is unkind. That is unloving. He says, you must do this. I command you, he says in verse 6. You should do this to shame him. But notice verse 15. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So what does that look like practically? You go to that person and say, brother. You're a member of our body. You're a member of our flock. We, we love you. We care for you. But this idleness, this, this idea of being a busybody, this, this, this person who's not working, we appeal to you, brother. You're not pulling your load here. You're expecting others to do for you what God is expecting you to do for yourself. And so if you will not repent, we, we are asking you to step away from us so that you're marked out through our warnings as someone that we can't associate with. And presumably, the Holy Spirit working in that heart, if he truly is a brother, will, will cause shame in his heart. And when that shame is there, he'll say, I'm apart from the body. I don't like this. I'm out from underneath God's protection. I need to work. I don't need to be idle. I need to do the right thing. I've been shamed. And then he's been properly admonished as a brother. Here's another, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And these are all, as you can tell, passages 
that are seeing themselves in the context of the body in general, the church body. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, there was a man who had sinned some kind of sin. It was some kind of serious sin. And it was a sin in which apparently the entire body was aware, which may have meant that he'd been dealt with before. But in this case, if he had been dealt with on a public level, he'd been disciplined in a corrective way, in a public way, he's now in the position of repenting, and he's apparently manifested that repentance to the degree that he now needs to be forgiven, and the Corinthians are apparently not choosing to forgive him. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, whoever this man is, and whatever sin he's committed, and he's now coming to repent, or he has repented, and he's manifested that repentance, he says, for such a one, this punishment by the majority, by the rest of you. Remember, he's writing to this church. The punishment by the majority is what? It's enough. It's enough. Lay off. It's done its work. This discipline of the congregation, it's done its work. He's repented. That doesn't say that explicitly, but that's clearly the context. He's repented. He's come back. He said, I want forgiveness. I want your affirmation. I want to do the right thing. I've repented of my sin. In verse 7, Paul says, So you should rather turn to forgive him and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you, he says, to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I may test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I forgive also. What I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. What would Satan want to do? He want to drive a wedge in the fellowship by a lack of forgiveness. And this man has come, and he's repented, and he wants forgiveness, and he's undergoing what appears to be excessive sorrow, and he's being told, we don't forgive you. We don't extend forgiveness to you. And Paul says, I beg you to love him. I beg you to comfort him. I beg you to forgive him. And I'm even testing you in this because you don't want Satan to deceive you into thinking that you should continue to withhold forgiveness. Why? Because such an infliction of the majority of the pain of unforgiveness on this man will wreak excessive sorrow for him. Forgive him. Come to him. Go to him. Seek him out. Love him. Affirm him. He's repentant. So don't go too far in the idea of standing aloof from such a one. Now, I don't know if this man is the man in 1 Corinthians 5, but go there. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This may be that man. We don't know. It's so hard to tell. But maybe this is the background. Chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported, Paul says, that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, some kind of sexual relationship with his stepmother. And Paul says in verse 2, and you are arrogant. In other words, you, you, you haven't dealt with it. 
Ought you not rather to mourn, he says? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. This is probably a man, if it is that man in 2 Corinthians 2, who's involved in this sin, and it's a sin that's known in the church, and the church isn't dealing with it. And Paul is saying, you're you're arrogant about this. So what may be constructed here is that if this man is the man of 2 Corinthians 2, they have gone so far in the other direction where they were allowing it to occur in 1 Corinthians 5, and they were somewhat arrogant in the idea. And then when Paul chastises them and warns them and teaches them and admonishes them, maybe he repents and they still say, because they were walloped with a spiritual whack on their backside, okay, so we're not going to even deal with this guy. He's in sin. You've chastised us enough. And they went to the other pole, and now they're saying we don't forgive him. So here's the correction for those who aren't dealing with sin in the church, and 2 Corinthians 2 is the correction for those who are going too far and don't forgive. So you've got teaching for both. And here's the teaching for a person who is unrepentant in the moment. He's involved in gross sexual immorality. And Paul says, verse 3, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. What kind of judgment? Verse 4, When you are assembled in in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. What, what kind of immorality is this guy experiencing in the flock and you're not dealing with it? He says, don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? This, this sin is, is moving and kneading itself into the whole lump of, of dough. Verse 7, Clean, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. He says, don't have the unleavened, uh, don't have the leavened bread of sin, sexual immorality, but the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And then he clarifies himself, verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. No, I'm not talking about you dealing with people who are outside the church who are those kinds of people characteristically i'm talking about dealing with the man who's inside your fellowship who's acting like one of those outside the fellowship characteristically and you're arrogant and proud and you're even boasting about it this is not good this is not good and he gives practical instruction in verse 11 but now i'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother he's a so-called brother If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, swindler, not to even eat with such a one. Table fellowship is so important there. Not to even fellowship with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Unbelievers purge the evil person from among you. And again, someone could say, that's unloving. That's unkind. That's uncaring. Well, isn't it true that Paul says a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? God wants a pure church. He wants that holiness. Remember Hebrews 12? You say, well, what's the practical process? What what, what do I do when something like this happens? Well, turn to Matthew 18. And this is the passage on which we'll close. Matthew 18. We'll go through it very quickly. It's really, in a sense, 
so clear. It's not convoluted at all. Here's a very, very simple step-by-step process. Here's what church discipline is and isn't. Here's this collective discipline, this restorative discipline. It's always for restoration. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And by the way, that's where the vast majority of discipline situations end, right? They begin and end right there. You go to your brother, he's, he's sinned, and it even says sins against you. It, it could mean that, of course. You tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. That's it. It stops right there. You just go, you, you admonish, you, you share your concern, and if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Verse 16, but if he does not listen... Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And Jesus is taking back here the idea of the Old Testament witness situation where there was a cooperation of the facts. And so you're bringing a couple of others with you because this person hasn't listened to you and you're establishing by the evidence of two or three witnesses. There may be even more steps involved here where you're talking to witnesses, talking to others, talking to establish the facts of the situation. And once that's done, and once presumably that has been clarified and constituted as sin, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And see, that's that collective sense, right? That collective restorative discipline. We want to restore you, brother. We want you to be restored to full spiritual health. But if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. He's to be treated as an unbeliever. Why? Because he hasn't repented in the first step. He hasn't repented in the second step. He's now not repenting when it's even going before the church. So you have to treat him in this fourth step. Truly I say to you, Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven or shall have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my my name, there am I among them. He's simply saying, look, you go through this process, first step, You go to your brother privately, quietly, lovingly, carefully. He doesn't listen. Then you take two or three more. You you substantiate by evidence, by witnesses, the idea. And then thirdly, if he doesn't listen to them, you tell it to the church. And if they don't listen to the church, then you treat him as an unbeliever, a person who is not to be able to partake of the Lord's Supper. And according to 1 Corinthians 5, with the sense of the unrepentant, and then you purge them from among your midst. Now, I recognize as we close, this sounds like an incredibly negative message today. But think back to what I said regarding Hebrews 12. It's all for love. It's all for love. It's reaching out. It's loving. It's caring. You know, the most unloving, the most selfish thing to do is to allow someone to continue to go off the path, careening off the cliff into judgment. That's the most unloving, selfish thing. Let them go. Let them do what they're going to do. The most loving, caring, judicious thing to do is to go to them and say, I love you. I care about you. I want you to be healed. I want you to see this besetting sin put aside. I want to help you with this. Can I help you with this? I've seen this. It's destroying your life. It's destroying your family. I've been involved in situations of of discipline before. 
And yes, some of them, they never respond. And so you just, you treat them as an unbeliever. You continue to bring the gospel to bear on their lives. But oh, the joy of a pastor's heart and oh, the joy of a church's heart when somebody does repent through the process and they respond and they say, thank you for loving me enough and caring about me enough to let me not go off that cliff. I was, I was all about just seeing the destruction of my family, my friends, my acquaintances, my own life, and you cared enough about me to come to me, even on a public level, and you pursued me, and I now come to repent. And you know, if that's the case, then you go right to 2 Corinthians 2, and you say, it's time to throw a party. The, the, the kingdom of God has seen one, one back, snatched, as it were, from the burning. This is, this is a restorative discipline, always at its heart. It's never punitive in the sense that we'll get this guy, we'll get this woman, they'll learn not to do this or do that. It's restorative, it's love, it's care, it's grace. And that's the essence of church discipline. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for allowing us, just even in a short few moments, to explain a wealth of passages that speak of the pervasive nature of pursuing those in the body, seeking those members who are veering off the path and seeking them out and encouraging them and admonishing them and, and loving them and caring for them. And Lord, we know that in that generic sense it's, it's happening all the time someone's sharing a verse of scripture with someone or praying with someone and that person immediately sees a sinful area of their life and they repent immediately and they respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and that goes on probably 90% of the time that in the church nobody knows a thing and it's wonderful body life and it's growth and health and sanctification but Lord in that in that smaller percentage of situations there's someone who is recalcitrant and unrepentant and unloving and uncaring about the rest of us so as to deal with their sin and we lovingly and carefully and gently go to them and we seek their repentance and Lord in those very small percentage of cases when it has to go to the church we ask that you would make us loving and gentle and kind it's it's one of the hardest things to do, but it's one of the most loving things to do at the same time. And so, Lord, we pray that within our own membership, as we form here this inaugural membership of Thousand Oaks Bible Church, that you would, you would allow us to show supremely this love through discipline so that we could share in our collective holiness for your glory, for our good. We need each other in the body of Christ and we need each other's discipline of us. We cannot walk this Christian walk on our own. We need help. And we ask you to give us that help through fellow members of the body of Christ, even through the process of discipline. We love you. We love each other. And we ask that you would work in and through us so that we truly would have the kind of holiness that marks us out as different from the world so that you could take from the world those who see what we're doing, how we love each other, even through discipline, 
and they would say, I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of this membership that loves each other so supremely. Lord, may it be so. For your honor and glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to receive the offering now. And what a better segue than to give to the Lord because of not only the instruction from his word, but the love we have for one another. Amen.